his car toppled, building and tired, just crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I I see some people running now. And the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of AquamanShrine.net and FirestormFan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Irdia Mobile Shag from Firestorm Fan. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from Aquaman Shrine. How are you doing, buddy? I am all a quiver with excitement. <laughs> why? Oh, why pray tell? Because we have a very special guest, the one, the only writer artist, Dan Jurgens, making his second hit appearance on the show. Awesome. So exciting. So um, if any of you are stopping by here for the first time, thank you for coming by. And just to give you a little quick history, the Firewater Podcast is a collaborative effort between our two websites, which is firestormfan.com and aquamanshrine.net. And on those sites, we celebrate our love of these characters from DC Comics and from a fan perspective and really just try and, you know, scream from the rooftops how much fun DC Comics is and get people excited about it. And so having Dan on the show is really just a huge thrill for us. If you don't know Dan, shame, shame, shame on you. Shame. Forever shame. Um, good idea to, good idea to insult new people coming to the show, Shaq. <laughs> well, if they're new to the show, they're probably coming because Dan's here. I mean, think about it. Anyway, everyone knows Dan. Uh, you, you probably know him best for creating Booster Gold and for doing a 10-year stint on Superman, writing and drawing it. And that, of course, includes The Death of Superman, which, by the way, if you don't know, he won a National Cartoonist Society Award for very Best nice. Division. Very nice. So, and as far as the New 52 goes, Dan's been very involved with that. At launch, you know, he, he was writing Justice League International. He was drawing Green Arrow. He followed that up with writing and drawing Superman. And bringing it back to our characters, you know, from the podcast, back in 2000, Dan did a year-long stint on Aquaman, and then in 2012, he did an eight-month stint on Fury of Firestorm. Now, looking forward, Dan is writing the brand-new ongoing series, Aquaman and the Others. Yay! And he's one of the contributing writers on the upcoming year-long weekly series, The New 52, Future's End, which features Firestorm. Woo! Yay! 
<laughs> so, folks, uh, we're going to get to the interview in just a second. However, if you'd like to uh, send any messages to the to the show or get up on the social medias, we're very active on the social medias. We've got an incredibly strong listening base of this show that are very interactive, and I'd love for you guys to get to know them. They're really wonderful folks. Um, if you're going to be on the social medias, please use the hashtag pound. FW podcast. That's uh, sort of how we denote that you're talking about the Fire and Water podcast. If you want to shoot us an email, Rob, what, what's that email address? Firewaterpodcast at Comcast.net. And we also have a Tumblr site where we feature some related images from our shows. What's that, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. There we go. Also, of course, uh, hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Rob and I are both out there as Firestorm Fan and Aquaman Shrine. You can find Firestorm Fan also on Google Plus, Instagram, and Tumblr. So, with that, I think um, probably got all the, all that out of the way. Let's let's get to this and let's talk to Dan. Well, Dan, thank you once again for joining us on the Fire and Water Podcast. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Awesome. I mean, let's. We should probably get out get get out of the way. The awkward thing for us is is the main reason that you're now both writing Aquaman and Firestorm was to get back on the show. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't like to divulge the deep seated motivations <laughs> like that. But yeah, what can I say? <laughs> this is a this is a pretty elite group of people you've joined. Actually, I mean, for people that have written both Aquaman and Firestorm simultaneously, and really, that's just Jerry Conway and Jeff Johns. I mean, you guys have like club jackets you wear, or no? But work? we should get some. Absolutely. You know, nice letter jackets or something like that. That would be nice. We we actually have an award we give away on the show from time to time to different listeners that really go above and beyond. And uh, we call it the STEAM Award because it's fire and water together. And uh, I think you honestly uh, earn a a Lifetime Achievement STEAM Award. (laughs) Outstanding. Congratulations, Dan. Uh, The STEAM Award is is tangible as STEAM itself, so enjoy that. (laughs) I'd like to thank all the little people, et cetera, et cetera. All right, first question. Uh, so we're going to start off talking about Aquaman and the others. Uh, specifically, how do we convince you to have Aquaman battle Typhoon, the Firestorm Rogue, in an upcoming issue? I think that's the same answer I tell everybody with a request, which is send a check big enough and we can talk. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Stuff in an envelope. Okay. Every man has his price. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, getting off that uncomfortable answer, uh, did you, <laughs> did you, now, did you pursue, I mean, when you heard about that they were going to do another series, because this was in the hopper for a long time, did you go after this, or did DC come to you? No, this was uh, a case, I was, I, I was just talking to Dan DiDio one day, and we were sort of kicking around various ideas of what to do next, things like that, and he looked at me, and he said, hey, what about the others? And I said, you mean the uh, the guys that Jeff introduced in Aquaman? And he said, yeah. So we just started, I think, talking general ideas a little bit. And one of the first things I asked was, you know, would we put Aquaman? Would it be Aquaman and the others? Because, you know, and I know everybody kind of shakes their head at this and they wonder about it now. But, yeah, Aquaman has enough of a presence that he really brings something to the book. And that's where we kind of took off from there and started putting it together. And here we are. So that was a, that was a, an essential to you was that that it would be Aquaman and the others, not just the others. I don't know that I saw it as an essential, but I I, I certainly was leaning in that direction because when you get down to it, if you look at the original appearance, I think it's like in issue eight. Uh, Jeff clearly writes a caption that says six years ago, which certainly obviously makes it clear that Aquaman and the others existed as a group before the Justice League did. 
So I start with that and just say, you know, if they were together prior to the Justice League, prior to the the real, you know, heavy-duty emergence of the New 52, then I think that's where the story begins, and that's why they should still be together uh, with that entire cast. Is, is there any plans to show us flashbacks to their adventures from six years ago? The one thing I keep talking about is uh, what's interesting is we saw the flashback story that we did um, with Black Manta and the crew and what happened with everybody there. But what we haven't really seen is the original story that brought them together. And uh, I think there's certainly uh, something there of interest, which is how, how did you guys meet each other? Who met first? How, what made you come together as that group? And, yeah, that's absolutely a story I want to tell one day. That's, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. Now, th- that ties into something else I wanted to ask you about was, I mean, in a lot of ways, this Aquaman that you're writing and Mira, or if you ever get Mira into the book, whatever, they, they are kind of the same character that you wrote, the characters that you wrote back, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago at this point when you wrote Aquaman. But they're also not the same characters. I mean, all their histories have been rewritten, but they're the same basic personalities. Um, did you? How did you approach that? Did you look at it like, well, these are completely new characters that I'm writing, or did you sort of feel like there was some stuff that you could take from your earlier, era, you know, run on the book? Actually, I tried to look at it as much as possible as something entirely new. I think that's the fairest way to approach it with the current readers, and I think it's also the fairest way to approach it with the characters in question. And you know, in terms of if, if you look at Aquaman now versus what he was and everything, I think it feels at first glance like he's the same just because we see the costume, right? But I do believe that when you get below that and really start to get a better feel for it and look into it more, that this is very clearly a different Aquaman. He's a little more rash. He's a little more impulsive. I think he feels younger. Uh, I think he is a little more likely to question different ideas. I don't, you know, he doesn't necessarily walk around and say, I am the king of the seven seas, that kind of stuff. So I do feel the differences that absolutely are there between, you know, what we had before and what we had now. Not to try and tip anything, but is there any plan to have Mira show up? Uh, Yeah, obviously I think Mira has to be in it at some point. And, uh, you know, certainly the outline is written that way at, You know, to start with, I felt it was really most important to give each of the current team members sort of um, equal screen time, if you will. So if we look at the first issue, you know, I was very deliberate about making sure, you know, uh, Prisoner of War has, you know, three pages here. Yawara has three pages and everything like that because I want to treat them as equals, bring them on that way, and really not get into whatever characters they might have around them. If, you know, for example, if Prison of War had his own book, you know, whatever his supporting cast would be, I wouldn't have brought them in either. Right. And just for the record, Prisoner of War needs his own book. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, from his first appearance in the Aquaman series, he's just been such a breakout character. I, I absolutely love that character. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, the fact is, even if he had his own book, it would still be a group book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, we know Shag would be first in line to buy a Prisoner of War solo title. We've we've established okay. that a long time ago. Um, we'll keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got I got a thing for characters who have voices in his head. I think. And then one other thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, there are not a lot of precedents for this type of super team in terms of where you've got a marquee character and his sort of group of, you know, his backup band kind of. There's Batman and the mm-hmm. Batman and the Outsiders is clearly you know the main one, and then there was the Superboy had a book Superboy and the Ravers. But, you know, for the most part, super teams aren't written like this. Um, is there any particular inspiration that you drew from either out, comics or outside of comics or movies or TV that, that, I don't know, informs how you're writing this, how you're approaching this series? Uh, I don't know that I, I would say in that real direct fashion that there necessarily is. I, I think, um, well, first of all, I want to step back just a little bit. And, and if you look at what I said earlier, when they first came together six years ago, you know, we obviously you're dealing with a much younger Arthur at that point. So would he really have been even the unquestioned leader if you go back to that time? When they first got together, if not, you know, who would it have been? The operative? He would have been the oldest one, certainly. Um, so I think you, you even have to start to look at that. But beyond that, you know, just in terms of, you know, kind of that loose conceptual thing, uh, to me it felt a little bit like there were certain periods of the defenders where they were sort of like a, a team that wasn't a team right. or a group that wasn't a group. And so, you know, maybe it's fair to say there's a loose association there somehow. Are there uh, any characters on the team that you enjoy writing more than others? And uh, is there any character's voice that you had a difficulty finding? Um, I think probably uh, Sky was just a little rocky at first, if only because we have seen less of her. Um, she, you know, she's the new member of the team and everything, and and so trying to get a feel for that, maybe. Um, but what is remarkable to me is if you look at their original appearances, and once again, uh, it was Jeff, Ivan, and Joe Prado who created them. And if you look at those original appearances, the characters were very quickly separated one from the other with some individual traits, individual characteristics, and that kind of thing. So that became, you know, fairly easy as a writer to to start to extrapolate some of those elements and build them into where we were going in the future. Um, obviously, I think Prisoner of War is, you know, absolutely fascinating just because of the amount of voices in his head. So, for example, uh, one of the things I've been doing uh, very consciously is having him address some of those personalities and ghosts by name. You know, he's, he's going to call someone Johnson. He's going to call someone Smitty. He's going to call someone Anders, you know, whatever. And I think as the series unfolds then, the idea is to make sure that some of those characters start to resonate a little bit, almost where readers would say, wait a minute, this is the third time he's been talking to Johnson. Who the hell is he? You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that. I think Yuara and her past and um, whatever her past might have been with Aquaman. It's something that's very interesting to, to key in on. And then obviously the operative where we really don't know, you know, even necessarily know his real name and all the adventures he might have been a part of. In the past. So basically what I'm saying is I don't have a favorite. <laughs> you know, when you write, it's kind of like on, on Tuesday, you kind of hit that line of dialogue with one of them and say, oh, wow, that, that was great for Prisoner of War. He's my favorite. And then the next day you're writing something for Yuara and it's her. 
team books, that's it's got to be really different than writing solo characters. I mean, you, you're obviously well-known for writing solo characters for years. And I'm trying to remember, because I'm doing this a bit off the cuff. I mean, I remember you did Teen Titans. Yep. Um, I'm trying to remember if you did any other team books. Or am, am I you forgetting anything? You did Justice League, too. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens if I didn't prepare that question. Sorry. So is, is it really difficult putting together a team book versus a solo book? I mean, is it – do you find it, one more enjoyable? Well, it, it's certainly more complex. But at the same time, what I always try and say is don't think of it as a team book because the minute you do – I think you start to force it in a certain way. And when you write something like Justice League, where you have, you know, Green Lantern has his own book, Superman has his, Batman, etc. To me, then, yeah, that's kind of a teen book. When it's Aquaman and the others, and you have characters that aren't necessarily appearing in any other place, at that point, it's a group of characters. It's a book about those five characters and not necessarily a teen book. You know, if that difference sounds logical at all um but it's just like when you have a book with a main character and like his secondary characters of four or five people in terms of the cast you have to think about like a cast where they all have equal standing makes perfect sense so well the buzz seems to be pretty good on the book people are enjoying it people are buying it so i'm excited for it i hope it's gonna continue to be a winner for you yeah i hope so Shag, Shag, it sounds like a Prisoner of War might have like a certain sort of Firestorm Martin Steiny relationship going on with the ghost in his head. That's that's what I was going for when I said he's, <laughs> he's I, I got a thing for characters with voices in their head. Exactly. <laughs> what a nice segue there. Thank Bob. you. <laughs> Almost like a pro. Well, um, folks at home, if you if you don't know, Dan wrote the Fury of Firestorm series for eight months, brought us a, a more iconic version of the character, and ended tragically at issue twenty. Uh, very, very heart-wrenching for many of us Matchhead fans. So, Dan, could you tell us what you had planned for Fury of Firestorm if it had continued past issue 20? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, to go back to it, when I took the book, obviously at that point it was in a little bit of trouble. And, and quite honestly, I didn't know, do we have five issues, six issues, 10, 14, whatever. Um, but... The, the one thing I really wanted to get to and wish I had been able to do a little bit more was kind of a um, a more scientific study of his powers and and to get into that a little bit more. Because I think if you look at the New 52, when the two firestorms emerged, all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, I can go blast stuff. And, and I think there would have a play, been a place to really start to examine the powers a little bit. And what I had hoped to be able to do is, if you go back to like 19 and 20, when we uh, showed up with Killer Frost and Typhoon, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to do, yeah, best case scenario was going to be an arc where, say, each of those issues was going to be more devoted to one of those villains. So it was like, you know, 21, go take care of Typhoon. 22, go address Killer Frost, that kind of thing. And through each of those, get into some character exploration of the villains, as well as a further study of what exactly are Firestorm's powers. You know, and and to start to even say what exactly is the nature of Ronnie and Jason when they separate. You know, it's like, does Jason, you know, does he disappear or does he physically go something, you know, and start to play with some of those things a little bit. But, you know, the market being what it is, we didn't get the chance and that happened. Are you going to get to play with any of that in Future's End or is that a, not not digging for spoilers, but is uh, any of that 
have you dug up any of those old notes for that, or is it going on? I, I think um, what you do is, you know, it's interesting. When you, when you have a book that comes to an end like that, and you get that vantage point of time and separation from the project, you can look back and say, you know, what thoughts did I have that were there that might have worked? What was a bad idea, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, how can you open this up and make it work better next time around? And that's what you always ask. I mean, um, you know, even when you're working on a book as it goes along, all of a sudden you'll find, well, three years ago, I had this idea where Superman was going to fight, you know, whomever or do this or find himself in this set of circumstances. Three years later, your mindset is a little bit different, but you go back and you you find that idea you had and you can take 15% of what was there then and still use it today. And that's just natural. But yeah, there's, there are a few thoughts I had back then that I'm taking a look at. Cool. Very good. Well, one of the thoughts that, that we never, I don't think we ever got to see, maybe you can tell me I'm wrong here, but in the advanced solicitations for issue 15, there was a big thing. It said, don't miss this issue's shocking conclusion as the first hints of a disturbing new force in the DCU are seen. I mean, a lot of hype around that in, in, in that blurb there. And I don't think we ever got to see what it was. Was that something else that played out elsewhere in the DCU? Was it just an idea that didn't pan out? What? No, primarily that were uh, that was about the time we were really starting to shift gears. And you know, it's um, it, it sometimes you know solicitations are written. I mean, this gets back a little bit into comic book one hundred and one, but sometimes the solicitations are written before the book itself is done, and you start to get into. Uh, editorial switches and changes and things like that, and some of those ideas end up changing. That's even as simplistic as saying that's why sometimes you look at a solicitation that said, you know, Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble are writing and drawing that issue, and when you pick it up, it's the Great Gazoo instead, and it's just because, <laughs> hey, you know, those are the changes that happen between planning and production. So is Jeff Johns the Great Gazoo, or is he more of a Barney Rubble? Just... Uh, I think that's the mystery to be solved by others than us. <laughs> Um, you know, Professor Stein showed up in the last issue of Firestorm as well, which kind of came as a big surprise to a lot of the fans. Was that something you'd been setting up, or was that more of a payoff for series yet to come? I think, um, no, that was that was something I had been setting up and hoping to get to, because there again, I, you know, I think that whenever you say there's a character, you start a series off right, and you just say, Professor Stein is dead. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that when you do that, you do a bit of a disservice to the readers because they don't get to see the death on screen. You know, you, I think that, you know, you don't say it, you show it. There's that old adage of whether you, it's a movie or TV or comic book or whatever. You don't just say it, you show it. And so we never really saw that. And I thought, you know, from the very first time we saw Firestorm, here's, you know, Jason essentially pulling out this incredibly important piece from his locker, right? It's like, oh, guess what happens? I have this in my locker. Right. Well, well, why did Stein send it to you? Why do you have it? All those questions were to be asked. Well, I always wanted somehow to get to the point uh, where Stein was alive, yes. Okay. Cool. Well, as a huge Stein fan, we appreciate uh, bringing him back. And, of course, he's played a role in Forever Evil Argus now with Sterling Gates, which is right. great. And actually, that, that kind of leads me to our next question, which is Firestorm, without, even though he doesn't have a series, himself, his supporting cast, his foes, they've all really 
played a high profile recently. I mean, the Firestorm's been in Justice League, you know, the Forever Evil series, he's played a key role, the Argus. Now he's in Justice League 3000. We've got action figures, chess pieces. You know, the Caitlin Snow just got cast in the Flash TV series. Right. Uh, what, what's been the general feelings towards the character, uh, at, you know, with, with the powers that be at DC? Or, and has his continued presence been sort of serendipity or has this been orchestrated? No, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both, to be perfectly honest. And it's it's interesting to me just because if you go back to last year, for example, um, as as we decided to introduce Killer Frost into the book, and you know certainly a regret that I have is originally as originally conceived, um, where the you know the six villains all would have gotten an issue to shine, we would have seen a lot more of Killer Frost than we ended up seeing in reality, and. You know, you go back to that, and all of a sudden, uh, Killer Frost obviously had her own Villains Month book with mm-hmm. a nice 3D cover and everything. So I, I think what it is is people look at it and say, obviously, there's something of worth here. I mean, there was a time when Firestorm was certainly one of DC's best-selling books, and, you know, it was a big success. And the villains were as well. You know, Killer Frost had that cool sort of uh, icy look to her and everything, as well as that, I think, clear-cut difference from Firestorm power-wise that Mm -hmm. is always fun. So, you know, a lot of that stuff worked, and it's just saying, well, okay, if all the ingredients are there, how do we pour it all into the pot, stir it up, and make it come out right again? So I think that's part of what's happening. Well, with that change where you were going to, you know, feature her, and then then they did it the other issue, the the villains month. Like who? And I hope you don't mind me asking. Like who's technically the creator of Caitlin Snow? Then I um I don't know for sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I really don't know necessarily enough about the background of everything and how it came together to make sure that it worked that way to really comment on it. You know, sure. and and that's not unusual, by the way, because honestly, what really does happen so often is uh you put five people in a room and you start talking about ideas and someone will say, Hey, you know, we need a guy with rubber band powers. And by the time you get done with the discussion, it's turned into this giant elephant that can stretch or something. And you say, how did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's often how things happen. That sounds like the greatest job ever. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> I, I gotta say, you, you know, I, at some point, um, when, when you do have these story conferences and, and you have like the five or six people sitting in a room dreaming stuff up, honest to God, the ideas that end up on the cutting room floor, if anyone ever wanted to film one of these things, it would be outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> you need to write a, you know, a tell-all biography. Yeah, exactly. I, actually, you probably have some pretty interesting stories you know, with, with your days on Superman and everything like that. Eh? Something to think about. Yeah, but I have enough people who are mad at me, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I told my wife I was recording this podcast today, and uh, I mentioned, "Oh, well, it's Dan Jurgens," and you know, she she's a non geek, so I, I had to put it kind of her terms. Like, oh, the guy who killed Superman, he's the one who killed Superman. I'm like, <laughs> so brought him back. Let's remember that. You know, yeah, exactly. Kind of planned it from the start. Um, so now, looking forward, obviously you're working on Aquaman and the others, and another huge, huge project for DC on the horizon here. The new Fifty Two Futures End. You're one of the lucky folks working on that. What um, What can you tell us about the storyline of that so far? Well, really, you know what it is is uh, we're looking at the DC universe five years from now, 
the entire storyline is set in the future. And the question is, five years from now, where would we be in terms of characters, in terms of character progression? Uh, what would the DC universe be like at that point? What, what are the things that we can sprinkle in that become fun for readers to see and capitalize people a little bit and, and that kind of stuff? And I think um, as we talked about this as a general project, one of the things that we discussed was the idea that, you know, if you're um, an adult and you're going from ages, say, you know, 28 to 33, you, you change somewhat. But if you're a high school kid, like, say, Ronnie and Jason, and you're, you know, a junior or senior in high school, which then takes you into college age, that's when you go through a lot of changes. And do characters become closer? Do they grow apart? You know, often, you know, you think about it, all the people you graduated high school with, often you just lose touch with them over that five-year period. You know, what happens to someone then? And I think as it relates to Firestorm, those were the things that really intrigued us about that character and gave us what we thought was going to be the, the potential to tell some really interesting stories. That's cool. Now, if, I don't know what you can and can't say, and so don't, you know, we're not trying for spoilers here. But it, so it's fair to say you're working on some of the Firestorm pieces. Yeah. Uh, and I know other characters involved are Frankenstein, uh, Batman Beyond, and um, I'm blanking on the other one they've promoted heavily. I apologize. But are you are you sort of compartmentalized in writing? Are you just working on the Firestorm piece? Is it a whole joint thing together? Do you write an issue and someone else writes an issue, more DC Challenge style? How does that? How does this work? Uh, no, the way we, uh, and I can't believe that in the year 2014, someone actually referenced DC Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> no going to get that one. Uh, uh, I think that, uh, no, the way we're working here is, uh, the other writers are Keith Giffen, Jeff Lemire, Brian Azzarello, and myself. So we, we get together, we sit in a room, we'll have um, editorial in there with us, and it'll be, what is the grand story? So we've kind of put that together um, in equal parts of where we go from issue one to the end, what do we build to, what are we bringing into the DCU, where do we go from there, that kind of stuff. That's the four of us. But at the same time, we step back then and say, here we each have a cast of, say, eight characters. So for me, it would be Firestorm as well as the other characters I have that are interacting with him, both in terms of civilians and non-civilians, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Giffen has his, Brian Azzarello has his, Jeff Lemire has his. And we're giving up each issue not in terms of, you know, short stories or anything, but... We kind of shoot for it this way where we'll each have five pages per issue to tell our story. If someone needs more, they're going to get eight. If someone needs less, they'll say, you know, I only need three pages this issue, so give more room to Batman Beyond, that kind of thing. And it's working out very, very well. Uh, but what it allows us to do is by kind of, kind of having that character concentration, we all know that way how our characters progress as they fit in with the much larger story that we're telling at the same time. Sounds a little bit like 52 was structured. Yeah, I think it's actually probably, you know, quite similar to that. You know, Giffen uh, worked on 52 as sort of the storyboard guy who did all the initial layouts that went to the artists and everything. And I think those guys found that to be a very effective way to work. And, you know, as we talked about it and said, well, we can do this, we can do that, we found that to be comfortable for us as well. And 
like I say, so far, I mean, it's, it's really been a lot of fun. Um, the thing that, and I always found this on Superman too, when you're working in that kind of environment, the energy you get by feeding off what everybody else is doing is tremendous. And that's really important uh, when you're doing comics. Are you guys all in the same room when you, when you've hashed this out sometimes? Yeah, we try to be. We also get on the, we also get on the phone on a regular basis. Uh, but we get together, you know, every couple of months and we start to lay out the next segment of story and what, and really working on that sort of the overall thematic elements that connect one issue to the next while then stepping back to say, you know, what happens with the characters that I'm writing as they move through this thing. So what you may see very much so is the idea that, you know, you take, I always put things in, in when I use examples in terms of popsicle man. So popsicle man might really take a prominent role in issues one through eight and then subside for candy bar boy. And then popsicle man will kind of <laughs> reemerge by issue 18, that kind of stuff. I want to read that comic. What's that one? <laughs> I probably shouldn't have given that one away. <laughs> so the, the way you describe the writers kind of reminds me, I mean, you got, you got four writers, you got four issues a month. It sounds a little bit like your time writing Superman in the 90s, as you referenced. Like, how, how would you say this one's different versus, you, you said what's, uh, you know, building the energy is similar, but what's different between those, that experience in the 90s and now? What's probably the most different is in this one, every issue is working this way. When I was doing Superman, you know, we would do, we would have places to do our own stories, and only the subplots would connect until we'd get to May where we'd have, like, you know, the death of, Superman, Death of Clark Kent, whatever, and the books would be connected for a three-month period, say. And then we would separate them again and start telling our own stories. This one, uh, we are an ensemble. We, I, I think of us as a band. We are the band, and we are playing all the way through. That's awesome. How'd you, how'd you land the assignment? And when you came on board, did, did you bring Firestorm with you, or was Firestorm already on, on the slate when you came on board? No, actually, um, Dan asked me if I wanted to get involved with this project of finding a way to do a weekly comic book again. And so, uh, you know, we all started talking about various ideas, various characters. Who, what can we do with this? I, I mean, we went through pretty much the entire DCU and said, you know, what can we do with this? What can we do with that? Where is there opportunity? Um, what is the story we can tell with this individual? What is the story we can take uh, this individual in? And that's where you'd say, okay, that's great. This is going to be a great story for Popsicle Man. But then by the time you get done, the overall theme of the story has changed. You peel them out and start to insert other people. So really, it, it was more like one of those cases where the project existed, the talent came in, and then the talent defined the project and put the story together. Hmm. Okay. So we should expect to see Mr. Banjo and various characters like that as well. <laughs> Mr. Banjo, yes, indeed. <laughs> Mr. Bojangles. Ripping a little bit off the uh, DC Comics Robot Chicken special there. Yeah. So this is not a legitimate question, but just knowing the fans are sitting here going, Dan Jurgens working on a project with a time shift. We're all missing Booster Gold. Just saying, we all hope he's in it. So we'll wait and find out. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> all right, I got a random off-the-wall question for you. What was the deal with Bloodwind? As a reader, it sort of felt like his story never really finished or got explained or maybe got derailed. What what was your vision for that character, and, and did it did in fact get derailed? Did it change, or was it just we didn't read it close enough? 
No, I think, uh, you know, it's more fair to say that um, if you go back to that time, it, it was a time that turned from a reasonable, practical working schedule into absolute chaos. And that is because of the death of Superman. Mm-hmm. So as you look at prior to the death of Superman, I'm writing and drawing Justice League and I'm writing and drawing Superman. And all of a sudden the death of Superman hits and everything changes. And it changed for everybody who was working on the books at that time. And the demands of that kind of started to cut more and more into Justice League. And ultimately, that's why Justice League had to go for me, where, you know, I ended up on the book for a shorter run than I anticipated. And it really was that the, the entire Superman experience became so pervasive and, and so unique at that time that it was really hard for all of us to focus on other projects for a while. And it was, you know, part of what even happened when we decided to do the death of Superman, you know, we didn't know how we were going to bring him back or when for sure exactly how it was going to work. And all of a sudden when the whole world is, is looking at you, that meant more and more concentration and effort had to go into making sure that worked. And ultimately by virtue of that, I think, the time I had to work on Justice League got cut back more and more, and I probably should have left the book earlier than I did, but ultimately it meant, yes, I had to wind up the Bloodwind story and kind of get out of that and move on sooner than I had planned to. Had he always intended to be Martian Manhunter? Hey. Uh, um, it had always, there was always the intention that it be Martian Manhunter, but to resolve itself in a different way. Hmm. Okay. You know, and, and part of that, I think, uh, if you look back at that now, you know, it does feel, I think, somewhat rushed and shoehorned a little bit. And there was going to be, uh, the mystery was actually going to play out longer, mm-hmm. which I think would have been cool. I think some of the best mysteries in comics, you know, you play them out as long as you can until the fans are ready to just, like, go after you with knives and clubs, right? <laughs> and, and we didn't get to do that in that instance, and uh, it had everything to do with what was going on in the other book. Gotcha. I mean, that's, that must have been wild for you to go from, you know, a, a well-respected comic you know, professional to being a guy being interviewed by the media all the time. I mean, all the inter- interviews you did, that had to be a completely turn your life upside down it it did at the, uh, you know it was even at the same time like uh that was all 1992 my my wife was pregnant with our second child at that time it was just like everything was <laughs> and you know a lot of it um was that and i try and explain this to people now who weren't there at that time they, they don't you know it's getting to be a long time ago and that frame of reference isn't there for everyone there will never be a situation or an instance like that in comics again. It was that singularly unique, and I, I don't see any way that could ever repeat itself. I, I managed a comic book store at the time, and I can kind of see where you're talking about and totally agree. I mean, it was we had a line out the door, and we're a small town. We had a line out the door around the building, people waiting in line for their black bag Superman. Yeah. <laughs> it was 75. It was just absolutely crazy. Nothing yeah. like it. Yeah, and that's what every store had. And I'll never forget um, that day going to do a signing, the day it came out. And I was signing at a at a store, and 
it was a cold, wet November night, you know, that kind of night when it's like 35 degrees and just raining and just no one wants to be outside. And it was the exact same thing. You get to the store and it was out the door, down around the corner, snaking around to the next block. I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, that's what everybody was experiencing everywhere. It was wild. I, I wore my black armband around for about a week in public and <laughs> you know, school and everything. So. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. and to this day, I'm, uh, I just did uh, Megacon down in Orlando. And the amount of people who are still coming up with those black bags and the black armbands and the posters that were inside and everything. And I swear to God that no matter how many of those things DC told me they sold, I know they sold three times that amount. If you <laughs> got to have signed every single one of them plus by now. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think it's time now, Dan, for our infamous lightning round. Shaboom. So you, you successfully survived it last time you were on the show. And uh, it's time to put you to the grind again. Rob, why don't we do this? Why don't we alternate questions? I was going to say that, and but I, what I want is I want you to go first because I refuse to ask Dan the third question. <laughs> because because I, I completely uh, do not agree with its premise. So okay. you have to answer the, ask them the third. Fair enough. Okay, the, the premise of the lightning round, Dan, is you get approximately five seconds to answer each question. So uh, the pressure's on. So I hope you, hope you make it, man. All right, Rob, start the clock now. Dan, what is the most useless item in Batman's utility belt? Chapstick. <laughs> I, always, I always used to say when Batman had the utility belt with the cylinders, it looked like he had 32 tubes of chapstick. <laughs> or, or do you think Wayne Tech made all its money? Hey. Uh, besides Booster Gold and Doomsday, who is your most enduring creation? Uh, probably Wave Rider and the Linear Men. Ah, good, good. All right. Uh, I was afraid you're going to take an easy one to go skeets. So, okay, who would win in a fight, Sharon Carter or Black Canary? Black Canary. Mm, okay. Now wait a minute. You changed that question because the, the version you sent me was who is sexier, Sharon Carter or Black Canary? Oh no, no, I changed. Oh, you, you didn't read the updated list. <laughs> that's, I, tell you. That's, I, just, I refuse that's, to ask that question because the answer is I, so obvious. It's a different. I got a different one at the end. Just do the next one. Okay. Same answer. <laughs> Finish this sentence. Monarch's true identity in Armageddon 2001 should have been. Ooh, Captain Adam. All right. All right. If DC asked you to bring back one of their classic war comics, which would you pick? I don't know. Uh, I would probably do Our Worlds at War. Mm. Okay. The dinosaur, do dinosaurs and the Soldiers, or just different, act, or the the anthology aspect of it. I think uh, all of the above. If you could do anything with it, why yeah. don't? Uh, have you ever had Superman peanut butter? If so, how did it taste? Never had it, so I can't answer. <laughs> Of all the comics in your collection that you were not involved in creating, which do you personally treasure the most? Uh, you know, the first comic I ever bought was Superman 189, and I still remember that to this day because it kind of, and I remember seeing it to this day because it had Superman on the cover with crypto barking at him and what looked like dead Kryptonians around. Uh, that would be one, and the other one would be um, a tie. So I'm giving you a tie answer. And I'm talking more than five seconds. Uh, you know, Batman 217, because I had broken my arm and was in the hospital. My dad brought me like three or four comics, and one of them was Batman 217. And in that one, it's where Robin goes off to college. And at that time, I read it and just thought I was reading like the most 
singly profound comic book story ever that Robin grew up and left home. <laughs> cool. All right. That's very cool. Uh, final question. In the... Ta- the- Yes? It's, it's not the final oh, question. All right. I'm Go sorry. ahead. In my final question. In the Tangent Universe version of the recent Super Bowl, Michael John Carter leads the Broncos. Ronnie Raymond leads the Seahawks. How could Booster have turned it around and won? Well, time travel, you do anything. So he would have gone back and gotten himself a much better crew of defensive players. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. Good plan. All right. Final question for the lightning round, which Rob didn't bother to read his updated email. <laughs> Who is sexier, Yawera, Yawera of the Others or Shakira from The Warlord? <laughs> uh, you know, Mike Grell always used to tell me that the, the actual secret of Shakira was that, you know, whenever she would turn from the cat into the human being, she was wearing the, the two-piece outfit. And Mike always used to say that the real Shakira never would have had anything on top and, in fact, wouldn't have been wearing any outfit at all. So... Um, I let that one sink in, and that's Grell. That's not me. <laughs> and I'll say Shakira. Ooh! All right, there you have it, folks. All Definitive right. answer from Mr. Jurgens. He has written one and drawn the other. So there you go. <laughs> All right, Dan. So tell the folks at home why they should pick out Aquaman and the Others number one that's in stores now, and the new Fifty Two Futures End number zero in stores on May third, which is Free Comic Book Day. I think I'll start with the Futures End first, and if nothing else, I'm going to say it's a free comic. You can't go wrong. <laughs> okay? We're, and seriously, you know, I got to, you know, DC has given out so much support on this that to start a major event, uh, or what is going to build to be certainly a major event, and to start it off with a weekly comic that they give the first issue away free on, I mean, that's really big stuff. So, you know, certainly I'll just say, if nothing else, even if you think you won't like it, it's free. You can't go wrong, okay? (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, I think it's important to note that with Future's End, it takes place five years in the future. Aquaman and the others uh, appears to have a character who can see aspects of the future. So it would be reasonable to assume, I think, that there is some connectivity there. Aside from that... Uh, it has Lon Medina is doing some great artwork in it, and I think it's going to be a fun, rollicking story with a lot of very, very intriguing characters. Awesome. All right. Absolutely perfect. I know I'm, I'm loving Aquaman and the others, and I can't wait for the future's end. So, uh, Dan, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up here. Anything you want to tell the listeners at home before, we, before you say bye? No, I think that's it. And uh, once again, give give Futures End a shot. I think you're going to be surprised. And it is definitely going somewhere. It's going to drive some major stuff. I'm glad you said that, because I think when everyone saw the first solicitation, they were like, Frankenstein, Firestorm, Batman Beyond. What? Yeah. And well, and the other part of it is, is just because that's where it starts does not necessarily mean that's where it ends. And, uh, you know, already we've there's been some talk out there, obviously, about where it's taking the entire line for September. Um, and then there's all, there are also places where it's going beyond that that are, I think, you know, big stuff. Can't wait. Popsicle Absolutely man. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And Candy Bar Boy. <laughs> Truth and justice and see on land.
lives forever. Yeah! And I'm Mary Hart. Everyone said it was impossible that Superman could be dead. Now it appears that everyone was right. Entertainment Tonight has the scoop on the return of the Man of Steel, and there aren't enough capes to go around. He was conquered by an evil warrior named Doomsday in November. But faster than a speeding bullet, Superman will be zooming back to the comic pages in April. And DC Comics editor Mike Carlin says the new Man of Steel will be better than ever. When all is said and done, most readers should get the kind of Superman they like the best. In the current issue, Superman's death is being mourned worldwide. Even President-elect Bill Clinton and his wife Hillary are shown delivering a eulogy. But come April, Superman will reappear in four different forms, according to Carlin. What we see at the end of this issue are four people who claim to be Superman. And we don't know if any of them are yet. The final sketches are still being put together, but Carlin says Superman will take the form of a super-powered teenager, a steelworker, a determined warrior, and a cyborg from space. They all seem to have bits and pieces of what Superman was all about. And the mystery is, you know, which of these guys is the real McCoy. The apparent key to Superman's return happens when his foster father, Jonathan Kent, slips into a coma and meets the Man of Steel between life and death. Both struggle to save the other, and Superman returns soon afterwards. As for reports Superman will also return to Mary Lois Lane, nothing's official yet, but Carlin says everything will be resolved in the end. Hopefully, we will be able to get all these characters together in one place and sort out all the answers. The first issue of The Return of Superman will be out by April 15th. The original death issue has already become a collector's item worth up to $75.